I hope that as we turn in our Bibles to this passage, and as we study God's Word together this morning in a way that perhaps you haven't for some time, you'll give some thought to the remarkable, remarkable privilege that we have in the access we have to the very words of God. In your hands, you hold the record of God's voice in history for the salvation of man. That is remarkable. Moses would say, who has heard the voice of God as speaking forth from the flame and lived? And in a unique way, we enjoy that privileged place. We have received the word of God and we live to tell of his great work on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. 13. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Here the Bible says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. One of the primary doctrinal commitments that holds us together as a body is a commitment to the authority of God's word in all matters of faith and practice. We are driven by, we are directed by, we are led by in every way the word of God. And should we discover individually or corporately as a congregation that we have run afoul of that standard, it is our hope and duty to quickly make a correction, repenting of that sin and returning to the standard of God for us. It is, in my estimation, important that we have the ability to speak with some level of precision when it comes to our commitment to the Bible. We're going to work through a bit of terminology in the time that we have together to give more than just a blanket statement or lip service to our commitment to the Bible, but to be able to articulate clearly and intelligently how deeply we are committed to the teaching of God's Word. I mentioned a moment ago, and we talked in some length last Sunday about this interruption, and I mean that in the best of ways. We have this series of teachings on the supremacy of Jesus, Jesus is a better revelation of God than the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Lord willing, we'll look next week at the fact that Jesus is a better high priest. But here, fixed between Jesus is better than Joshua and Jesus is a better high priest is this sort of parenthetical statement where we're celebrating the, the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise. If you've been following along in our study or are a student of the book of Hebrews, you'll note that the book of Hebrews is just an exposition on a number of Old Testament passages. In fact, what is being traced here in the book of Hebrews is the faithfulness of God over time in having kept his promises. 
from a series of quotes from the Psalms, one from Isaiah and one from Genesis 2. The, the preacher here is extolling the kindness of God and that not only has he made us a promise, but he is actively at work in seeing these promises through. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. This and more is celebrated here in verses 12 and 13. Everything that's said in these two verses is predicated on the notion that the Bible is God's word. Verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. The preacher begins with the notion that the Bible is God's word, and indeed it is. Here God has been proven to be faithful in keeping his promises. The preacher in Hebrews demonstrates the relevance, the truthfulness, and the precision of Scripture at every juncture along the way. The faithfulness of God himself through history to keep these promises attests to the truthfulness of his word, that indeed God's word is God's word. The fact that God has been faithful to keep the promises the Bible holds for us is evidence of the truthfulness of God's word, that this book is not just a book, but the book of God's word for God's people at every point along the way. A resurrected Jesus attests to the truthfulness, the unique nature, and the power of God's word. Jesus said, the scriptures testify of me, referencing there the law, the writings, and the prophets, a first century Jewish way of referring to the whole Old Testament. Jesus affirms the authority and the truthfulness of God's word in the Old Testament. Jesus calls and commissions the apostles inspired to write for us the New Testament we have in our hand. What we have this morning is the very word of God. The Bible is God's word. This seems clear enough, but a truth that need be reinforced in a difficult generation. There are a series of descriptions provided here in our passage for the Bible, describing what the Bible is and how the Bible functions for us. Look back to verse number 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. The first descriptor here is living. The word of God is living. I can remember as a boy watching the nightly news because in those days there was nothing else to watch except the nightly news and hearing a very adult conversation on the Constitution. It was at some point along the way when a Supreme Court justice was being appointed, and there was an observation by a politician of influence that the United States Constitution was a living, breathing document. What was intended by that was the idea that with cultural shifts and changes, that the reader of the Constitution was now free to read that Constitution in light of the cultural changes without great concern for what was intended in the origin of the document itself. That is not a good way to read any document, but it's certainly not what is intended by noting here that the Bible is living and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword. The fact that the Bible is living is just one way of observing the power of God through his word. The word of God is alive. What we hold in our hands is not an outmoded, antiquated book with no relevance or practical application for our day. The word of God is alive. 
bound to the meaning intended by its ultimate author, God himself, relevant and applicable in a myriad of ways in our personal experience. The word of God is living and effective. This word here for effective can sometimes be difficult to translate and to bring with it the full force intended, but it shares history with words like power or work or energy. The word of God is living and the word of God is powerful. The word of God is effective. The word of God is at work. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, the word of God will not return void. It, do, it does what it says it will do. The word of God is powerful and provides all that is needed for the follower of Jesus. You've experienced this in your personal life, the power of God through his word. The power of the word itself matched together with the spirit of God. In in lesser ways, like waking up in the morning and spending time in God's word and in prayer, and comparing and contrasting that experience with days when in the busyness of your morning, because you hit the snooze button 10 times too many, not spending time in God's word and in prayer, and the vast difference between those two days and their experiences one where your soul was well-nourished by the word of God and you were able to walk in victory over sin and joy in spite of the circumstance, one where things just seem to get to you in ways that ordinarily they would not. You've experienced the power of God's word in that way, and in that way, the power of God's word attests to its divine nature that indeed the word of God is God's word. The Bible is God's word. One of the ways that God pursued me before becoming a Christian was through his word. I could not have known less about Jesus. I could not have known less about the Bible. I could not have known less about God in general. But in a handful of episodes, in despair and discouragement, and and really in a desperate, desperate and dark place, I, I found myself just throwing open the Bible and reading a verse. I'm not an advocate of that approach to reading the Bible, right? Just drop it and see what page it turns to. But sometimes God accommodates our stupidity. And so I just, that's what I did. And, and, and it was amazing to me how God would speak to me. And, and I don't mean in this hyper-spiritualized, quasi-charismatic kind of way that people talk about reading verses out of context, reading the Bible as though we have no understanding whatsoever of how to read in context. I mean, in a real and powerful way, speaking to the circumstances of my life at that moment, even before knowing who God was, before knowing anything about the saving power of Jesus, God was building in me a reverence for the Word of God that would condition my heart to receive the gospel in faith. Sometimes, sometime later. You too have in all likelihood experienced the power of God's word in that way. That power attests to the divine nature of God's word. We've been talking a great deal lately about evangelism, training in evangelism, and you've heard interviews about evangelism and ways that you can participate in one-to-one evangelism, and we're going to continue to talk about that until Jesus comes to gather us together and to call us home. It is not only what we do, it is who we are here as a body. It's who we've been assigned to be within the body of Christ. We've talked about evangelism methods. That's a conversation that we've had 
as a pastoral staff here, what's the best approach? Should we stick to one approach or should there be many approaches? My motto is the best approach, the best method for evangelism is the one you will do. Whichever one of those you will do, that is the best one for you. And so go and do it with gladness of heart. But in my personal experience, one of the most powerful, one of the most effective tools in evangelism is what is called the Romans Road. Are you familiar with the Romans Road? Now, the reason the Romans Road was an early evangelism method for me is because there's a cheat code, right? You don't have to memorize a lot. You turn to the first verse, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the cheat code is you go to the margin and you write the next verse there so you don't have to remember it. So you see Romans 6.23 and you go there. And it culminates in Romans 10 where the Bible says that if we believe in our heart unto righteousness and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But I think the reason that method is effective or bears power is because in that moment, we're not relying on our input or even our personal testimony, but on the power of God's word to do the saving work. In the early days of seminary, it kind of shifted at some point along the way because I was there forever. But in the early days, ministers and seminaries were trying to figure out how do we do evangelism in this new postmodern context? If you don't know what postmodernism is, don't sweat it. Nobody else does either. But somewhere packaged within postmodernism is the idea that anybody can have their own set of truths, their own set of ideas, and no one else can impose their ideas or their truths on them. It also gives us the liberty to read things in kind of crazy, convoluted ways. From that is borne out deconstruction, which is just what it sounds like, deconstructing the meaning of virtually anything. And so we were often counseled that our, our best resource in evangelizing in a postmodern context was the personal testimony, to tell others about what Jesus had done in our life personally, because within postmodernism, what you cannot call into question is someone's felt personal experience. And I get that, and I'm willing to work within the framework that we have to work with. But our most powerful resource is the Word of God. There's something powerful and effective about laying before another human being the word of God and, and expecting of them, anticipating of them, that they interpret, that they read and make application of that particular passage in their own life experience. It sort of breaks the idea that somehow, some way, we're imposing our opinion. What we do here as a body is not about our opinion. It's not about an interpretation. It's not about a school, a system. This, this is not about us at all. We, we don't have some gimmick, some game plan for influencing our community or our culture. We're trying to flesh out together as a people what the Word of God requires of us. Often in preaching and, and, and more often in personal conversations with people, especially when they have sort of a counseling tone about them, I get the impression that they're suspect of me because, one, I'm a preacher, and preachers can tend to be a little radical, right? And then, two, because I'm a Baptist. And I just want you to take heart that I have no special allegiance to any system outside of the Bible. My job, as I understand it, 
is to interpret, to proclaim, to preach the Bible to you. Now, I am proudly Baptistic in my ways, but the moment in time at which Baptists go left when the Word of God says right will be the moment in time when I cease to be a Baptist. My goal as an individual and our goal collectively as a church is to come under the authority of God's Word, to walk faithfully in His commands, to celebrate and to honor Jesus in, according with, in accordance with the teaching of the Scripture. The greatest privilege of the pastor is to preach the Word of God. The great privilege of the Christian is to walk according to the commands of the Scripture. The great power of the church is to herald the living and effective Word of God for the salvation of souls. God's Word is living. God's Word is powerful. Now, I said in the beginning, I think it's important for us to be able to speak precisely when it comes to our affirmations on the Word of God. I want to give you four terms that I think you need to be aware of, that you need to know, and that you need to look for when it comes to, to our commitments on the doctrine of the Bible or the doctrine of the Scripture. The first word is inspiration. The Bible was divinely inspired, that is, God inspired the human authors of the Bible to write as they wrote. So you see the personality, the historical circumstances of both the author and the audience showing up in the text, but God divinely inspiring those men so that they instructed those under their care in a way that was not only profitable for that immediate circumstance, but was beneficial also for us now nearly 2,000 years removed from that original circumstance. The Bible was inspired by God in all of those ways that the power of God's word is demonstrated in our life are attestations or proofs of the, of the inspiration of God's word. Now, flowing from the idea that God's word is inspired is a second I word that's critically important. It is inerrancy, which is a 12 cent way of saying from Genesis 1-1 to the amen of Revelation, there is no mixture of error whatsoever in God's word. Now, this has been the buzzword when it comes to the Bible for about 50 years. As liberalism began to rear its head post-enlightenment and make its way into the Western church, there continued to be all kinds of affirmations on the inspiration of God's word, on the authority of God's word, or the sufficiency of God's word, even the infallibility of God's word. But what you'll find conspicuously absent in those contexts where there is not a shared commitment to the word of God as we enjoy here is the word inerrancy. Because it's the one word used to describe what we believe about the Bible that leaves us no room to wiggle from beneath the weight of what God's word requires of us. God's word is inspired and God's word is inerrant. There are no mistakes in the word of God, which is to say there are no mistakes in the word of God with regards to gender, gender issues, or sexuality in the present hour. There are no mistakes in God's word with, rego with regards to gender roles or whatever buzz issue it is of the day. God's word is true and let every man be a liar. So God's word is inspired. God's word is inerrant. God's word is authoritative. 
Our goal as Christians is to bow our knee humbly to the direction of God through his word. You know, people, people get so wrapped up. We're looking for some external uh, proof or, or prompting from God to do what God has clearly told us to do in his word already. We have his word. And I I get that God may not tell you who to marry. He may not tell you what job to take in his word. There may be some areas of your life where there's a little lack of clarity, but the principles and the precepts necessary to make those decisions in a God-honoring way are all found in the word of God. The word of God bears authority over our life. Now, This ought to to reign supreme. This ought to be a a ruling principle for every blood-bought Christian, but far too often it's not. And in my now more than 16 years of ministry, every time I have observed a rising lack of harmony within the body or a decreasing effectiveness or power in ministry, it's always because of some unbiblical want or desire that's growing up in the heart of Christians that ought to know better, that ought to know the word of God. Brothers and sisters, what ought to be turning in our heart and mind this morning as we meditate on the beauty and the preciousness of God's word is how deeply we ought to want to know the word of God, to know the God of the Bible. If this book bears authority over every area of our life, oughtn't we to know well its content? If you want to know God, you must know your Bible. If you want to know who you really are, you must know the Bible. If you want to know the promise of God for you, you must know the Bible. If you want to know what God requires of you, you must know the Bible. I I was not a reader growing up, dropped out of high school. I hated reading so much, I just quit high school. I hated it. I didn't care about reading. I wanted to be up and actively moving and doing something that I felt to be more beneficial. But when God saved me, I found that I had to know who this God is who has so radically changed my life. And I found myself immersing myself in God's word and commentaries and seeking to know him as best I could. I've said this before, and I think y'all think I'm kidding about this, but it's really true. I just began in the beginning, and I got to Leviticus 11 and those food laws where the Jews couldn't eat pork, and I didn't eat a pork chop or a piece of catfish till I got to the New Testament. I just wanted to do what the Bible required of me. And that ought to be the heartbeat of every believer, to open the word of God, to hear from God, and to set forth that day to do what God instructs us to do. This is the book that bears authority over our life. So seeking to make decisions in your personal experience, the Bible is authoritative in that matter. Seeking to make decisions as a married couple, the Bible is authoritative in that issue. We just went through that marriage and family series, and and I rejoice at the feedback, at the response that I was almost constantly receiving from members of our church and even people that don't go here but were a part of those services through live stream or some kind of broadcast. And, 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 And I wish, listen, if we would just do what the word of God says to do when it comes to marriage and family, do you know how that would radically change the nature of marriages and families? It's this authority business that we have problems with. 
Your trouble is not that you don't know what to do. The problem is you don't want to do what you know you ought to do. Brothers and sisters, the Bible bears authority over us. The Word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. Somewhere along the way, in arguing for the inerrancy and inspiration and authority of the Bible, many Christians forgot about the sufficiency of the Bible. Have you, have you noticed, if you've been a Christian for long or you're an observer of church history, you've perhaps noticed, as I have, that where our re- extra-biblical, re- our, our resources outside of the Bible, where we get more stuff, the power of the church seems to decrease. But where the church suffers poverty and persecution and is left with no more than the Word of God matched together with the Spirit of God, the power of the church goes up. It's as though we've convinced ourselves that the advancement of the kingdom is about our measly contributions, that somehow our methods or our paradigms or our gimmicks or our buildings or our budgets can grow the kingdom when the reality is that the Word of God matched together with the Spirit of God is not only all we ever needed, it's the only resource effective to do the work Jesus has called us to do. The Word of God is sufficient to see through the work assigned to us. It's interesting to me the way this sufficiency conversation has shown up in recent days. If I have been asked, well, if I had a nickel for every time I've been asked about critical race theory in the past six months, I could do this job for free starting tomorrow. And and I'm going to say something to you that's probably going to disappoint some. I don't know what critical race theory is because I don't care about critical race theory because I have the Bible and I don't have time to chase every counterfeit the world presents. I just don't have time. If you want to keep from getting ripped off, you don't have to be a student of counterfeit money. You just need to know what the real thing looks like. And the problem with so many believers, and the reason we're so often hoodwinked, the reason we're taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, the traditions of men, and not based on Christ, is because we don't know what the real thing looks like. All we've ever needed is the Word of God as the people of God. That's all we have ever, ever, ever needed. And it's all we ever will need with regards to the present discussion. We know from the Bible that we should pursue racial reconciliation, and we know of the pervasive nature of sin. The Bible is all we need. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is authoritative, and the Bible is sufficient. It is all we need as a people. Consider a sister verse here, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is, in our personal lives, all we need is found in the Bible. You may be thoroughly equipped for every good work by immersing yourself in the study of the scripture. There's a fourth thing in our passage that... We've, 
really not mentioned at all. Go back to verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I think, I think, my belief is that the double-edged sword is a reference to the fact that the sword of the Lord cuts both ways. The word of God is salvation for the people of God. And the word of God is judgment for those who would reject him. Not only is this sword double-edged, it is sharp, having the ability to penetrate as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's not that the preacher here is interested in the separation of man's constitution. It is to demonstrate that this sword is sharp. When God cuts with his word for salvation, he does so with precision. And when God cuts down in judgment, he does so with precision. Verse 12 continues, it is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Bible is the standard by which all men will be judged. The holy standard of God for mankind is firmly established in the scripture. No man is hidden from God's sight. No man is above or below the standard set forth in God's word. God's word sets the standard. God's word sets the standard. So sometimes, again, I think when I preach or in conversation, people suspect that this is just like the preacher's spin or the preacher's position. Now, I want you to know that it's my, my, my hope, my prayer, my goal that, that the pulpit ministry of this church be driven by the Word of God. And that so much of our conversation here is, is really just about the application of the Word of God. And I want you, under the preaching of God's Word and in any teaching setting in our church body, or as you teach others around you as well, that you employ the same philosophy, that your focus is not to tell your stories or to present your illustrations or to demonstrate your acumen or your intellect, but to clearly explain the Word of God and help those around you to put it into practice or application in their personal experience. And I want you as a body to feel the force of God's word when we read the word together. When the word of God is preached, my prayer is that you would feel the force of his word, that you would be faced or forced rather to reckon with the word of God. I I want you to know that when I say to you, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that that is not the opinion of the preacher. Those are the words of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, you must repent 
and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to know that when I say to you, believe in your heart unto righteousness and confess the lordship of Jesus with your mouth that you may be saved, that that didn't come from a tract. That's not the Southern Baptist method for salvation. Those are the words of God. And I want you to know that when we say that the only name given among men whereby we must be saved is the name of Jesus, we're not being narrow-minded or exclusive. We are the promises of God's word, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by him. And I want you to know that when we say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching, that that's not a program for us to grow our church. That is the agenda of God to advance his kingdom found neatly within his word. I want you to know that our focus is to expound upon and to celebrate and to make application of the word of God. And I want you to hear that without my voice, without my voice, with the full force and weight of God's word. I want you to, I want you to know what God's word says. And if, and if you slip off into hell knowing the word of God, your blood is not on my hands. But you've got to reckon with it. You've got to deal with this. Because what we do, we've become very sophisticated in this. We're, we're able to sort of do the chin stroke and comment on how pleasant the sermon was or how unpleasant the sermon was. That may be more likely. And, and, and we're able to, to see certain qualities in the presentation of the sermon and affirm that and say, oh, that was pleasant to listen to. I could follow that. That was nice. That was encouraging. I leave with this emotional feeling or whatever it is that you came seeking after with zero transformation having happened in your life. We do not gather here to be entertained or to have our ears tickled or to learn how to talk like Christians talk or to exercise Christian practices. We gather here to worship God and to hear the word of God, which requires of us that we would obey and adhere to the word of God. That's why we're here, right? When, when we open the Bible, we're, we're great at this. And, and so what happens is you become a Christian and you're zealous for the word of God, so we immediately give you a teaching position, which isn't necessarily bad, but let me tell you what baggage comes with that. The baggage that comes with that is that you begin to read the Bible for someone else. How many of you in the last week have read a passage of scripture and thought, boy, if he or she would do that, she'd be a different person. Wouldn't be on my nerves like they are. This could change their life if they only knew. And we're completely oblivious to what that word holds forth for us. I want you to read the Bible and to feel the full force of the Bible. Stop reading for Sunday school information and go to the word of God and come under the preaching of God's word with the expectation that in this moment, I'm encountering the living word of God and God's going to do something in my life in this very moment. Come to the word of God expecting that he'll reveal himself and stir worship in your heart. Come to the word of God expecting that God will require something of you here and determined in the days ahead to do what God has asked of you in the given text. Well, I want you to feel that weight, that, that experience that, that happens in us when the word of God is matched together 
with the Spirit of God, and conviction begins to turn in our heart, and life change begins to happen in us, and feet are put to prayers, and the mind of God becomes the mind of God's people as we are transformed by the power of the gospel. I want you to know the God of the Bible and to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, and the only means we have for just that is to immerse ourselves in the teaching and the training of God's holy and most precious word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for its relevance and its application in our life. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be a people of the book, not just defenders of the Bible, not, not just having an ability to speak precisely about what we believe concerning the Bible, I want that we would be more than just orthodox when it comes to the Bible. Help us to be hot-hearted, passionate followers of Jesus who are quick to bow our knee to the authority of your word over our life, no matter what that means for us. God, we acknowledge that our hearts are fickle, Though we have been called to you and endowed with the Spirit, the flesh is ever weak. And so we pray, Lord, that even when we don't want to do what we have clearly been instructed to do, that the fear of the Lord would compel us to honor your command. And God, I pray that along the way we'd find joy, delight in the duty to which you've called us. God, I pray that you would grant conviction. Not just conviction theologically or doctrinally, but conviction of our sin. The many times when we shirk your command for us in the heat of the moment, when we go our way instead of your way. God, forgive us of that. God, I pray that as we read, you would hide your word away in our heart, that we might not sin against you, that your spirit would illuminate and bring to our mind that in the fore of our thought, that that pivotal moment, God, would be your word and what you'd have us to do, that we'd lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. We thank you, God, for the power of your word. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Thank you, Lord, for this steady, faithful word for your people. God, I pray that as we have occasion to respond to the preaching of your word in these next moments, that our response would be indicative of understanding and wisdom. Lord, that we would humbly acknowledge your authority over us in all things. Lord, if there'd be anything undone in any one of us, Lord, that you would help us to honor the command of your word in that particular matter. I pray, God, that you would draw your sheep ever near the cross. And for those that are not yet of this fold, that you would call their name. Save some, God, we pray. Lord, I, I pray that you would awaken us from our slumber, protect us, Lord, and, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern as we read and study your word together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.